0: Hello and welcome to the Psycho Media Podcast. I am Timothy Swan.
1: And I am Ben Fell, and together we will be discussing the funny side of
0: psychology this week with a special mystery guest. A special mystery ghost? It's Valentine's Day, not... (laughs) Halloween. I know most people find Valentine's Day scarier, but uh, yes, the incredible Helen Arnie will be joining us later. And by later, I of course mean earlier. By earlier, of I course, mean later. You know, uh, let, oh, I pick the goose one again. <laughs> loud Tardis is loud. Um, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't know what happened with the sounds. Uh, anyway. Um, but before we do all that, we're doing the waffly bit, and because Helen is like a professional science comedian, she has to do things with her life, like carry a, 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 an overhead projector across London. Ah, uh, so, uh, the romantic world of the internet music comedian. Exactly. Um, so, um, while she's doing that, essentially, uh, we're going to record the first bit of the podcast and she'll join, join us for the, what I described as the important bit, but I think we all know. We all know. But this is the bit you love, right guys? And you love it because you're in it. Feedback. Ben, do you have any... Hurrah! I do! I,
1: t- I got fee- feedback. I got things. Like, to me. Uh, kind of. Anyway, yeah. So I got two bits of feedback this week. i blowing it all on one week. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. First is from Peter Mullen on Twitter. He says, I sincerely hope that the b facts jingle chord was a B or a B-flat slash sharp. I'm not musically proficient enough to detect it. Well, Peter, I hope it was too because I am not musically proficient enough to detect it either.
0: It didn't sound I'm not like even, a B to me, but... I, I'm not even sure if it was an actual chord. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, buzzing makes it hard to tell. Is that in harmony or out of <clears> harmony? I, I was
1: aiming for at least a note that I was hitting with the buzzing, but it's difficult. Um, there may be an outro this week which will be more musical stuff, but we'll have to see.
0: Oh, yeah, maybe. You know, I've only got to go to work in about two hours. That'll be fine. Maybe, maybe you will
1: have the outro next week. It's it's only very tentatively related to this week's topic, which is incidentally olfaction. <laughs> yes. Um. So uh, that was that was uh, feedback number one. Feedback number two on the WordPress page. Great to see stuff on the WordPress page. Keep it coming from Kieran. Uh, he writes, "I feel my Mystery Alaska comment may have been misrepresented somewhat." He commented that that my Village Pantomime reminded him of Mystery Alaska last week. So I've decided to explain the joke and thereby ruin it. You're welcome. Thank you, Kieran. All uh comedy that you have to explain is objectively more funny.
0: At least on this show.
1: <laughs> yes. In the film Mystery Alaska, which I like by the way, thus once again proving that the reception section of Wikipedia is worthless, agreed. A but small town they, in... they get to year two. A small town in Alaska called Mystery has a proud tradition of amateur hockey matches, which the entire town is devoted to. It is this devotion that reminds me of when of it when Ben spoke about his village pantomime. Makes sense. After a town native writes about the game in Sports Illustrated, claiming that it showed skill comparable to that in the NHL, the New York Rangers, well known as the hockey equivalent of the RSC, fly out to take them on in what the NYR players regard as a publicity stunt, but which the locals take very seriously indeed. This then led me to the mental image of Ben in a confrontation with ex-RSC member Brian Blessed over the correct way to play a pantomime bear for people to exit stage left pursued by, which amused me no end. So there you are. In an unrelated note, minus 100 points from Ravenclaw for not knowing the House of Cards was a remake of a famous and extremely good UK miniseries from the 90s. Yours pedantically, Kieran. Well, two things. One, thank you very, very much for conjuring the image of me arguing with Brian Blessed, both of us, in pantomime bear costumes. That will go with me to my grave. Two, thank you for putting it in Ravenclaw, best of all the houses except Hufflepuff. And three, uh, there should be, as I mentioned in my reply, there should be a warning sign on podcast saying uh, characters presented in this show may appear more ignorant than they really are. I did know that House of Cards is remake, but maybe I didn't convey it very well.
0: Well, also, we talked about it more before the show. Mm. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm interested because I liked the original. Uh, he points out to me that Francis Urquhart, probably in Slytherin, probably in Slytherin, just <laughs> might even be the heir of Slytherin. He's a very got a very snaky face, the guy in the original. I mean, Kevin Spacey isn't exactly un-serpentine. No. Um, but also, did you point out that he has used medicinal honey on the NHS? Yes. So he
1: follows this up with a comment. Also, seriously wounded, my, having seriously wounded my legs last year, I can confirm that medicinal honey is not just a World War II thing, but is in treatment used by the NHS to this day. Uh, so we hope that your legs are better. And once again, as I commented on his post, that they now, like all the better things in life, are slightly sticky.
0: Um, So, yeah, I think we've addressed the points balance of our respective houses, because I stick (laughs) with the Ravenclaw, obviously. Um, So, yeah, that was good. We did have someone liking the fan page, a completely new person. I'm always excited when it's someone I just don't know about. Um, Oh, that's an important one. Corrections, corrections. I said... (laughs) that the person who liked us last week's name was uh, Jai, but it's actually Jay and a lot of people get that wrong. And she was very excited about being mentioned, but increasingly less excited by the fact that we kept getting her name wrong. So, I'm sorry. It's our fault. We are a little bit ethnocentric because of... uh, Not very good at names. Oh, well, that's probably true.
1: I don't know what it is. Accent's debatably fine. (laughs) Names are real problem.
0: But never mind. Uh, so, Which yes, uh, Jay, I better be getting that right this time. Um, thank you for being excited to hear yourself and the feedback. Rhymes with it's, Scrub, Jay. Um, Yeah. Or, yeah, feedback. He is. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. You know, so, yeah, thank you, Gordon, for loving the podcast. Uh, it is appreciated. Every bit of feedback we appreciate. Sometimes we don't always read all of them out this week. We happen to have done because I have done nothing this week. Nothing. Brilliant. Really Ben, what have well you?
1: Well, I did something, several things this week, the most exciting of which was I went to an exhibition of Ice Age art at the oh. British Museum, which was absolutely excellent. I highly recommend if any of you are in or around London, you go and check it out. It's a fantastic exhibit. Um, from the display, I can conclude that two themes were foremost in the minds of prehistoric artists. Number one, animals, and number two, boobs. Uh, based on this... Myself and the friend I was with decided that the artefacts we are, that they have uh, uncovered there, like bone paintings, cave paintings, etc., were the equivalent of the internet. Uh, that is a repository for, one, people's pent-up fr- frustration at their daily struggles. You know, these days it's Gary on Twitter writing, burnt tongue-eating block of melted cheese directly from packet, hashtag FML, hashtag YOLO. Back in 20,000 BC, it was the elk that dodged Ugg's spear, and Ugg then carving a picture of that elk that dodged his spear and forced everyone to have berries for dinner again because he's angry at it. And two boobs. Okay. Uh, I thought yeah. you were going to go with the cat pictures thing. You know. Well, I guess it kind of is. Yeah. Less cats, more like mammoths and horses and stuff. but
0: yeah, um, I don't really know about anything about the evolutionary descent of cats. I mean, I suppose... There was, was...
1: A, there was a very interesting one with a guy with a, like a cat's head, which was very unique because it was the only one that showed kind of... A non realistic depiction, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, social, cultural, and even evolutionary pressures may have changed with the passing of centuries, but it would appear that, as many notable philosophers, poets, and public urinal graffiti artists have suggested, the humble boob reigns supreme eternally in our hearts and minds, which is quite a refreshing sentiment.
0: I guess so. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Media of the week, well, my media of the week, again, it needs no promotion. Well, what I've kind of got to, because they're both quite insignificant in some ways, uh, I've been watching Game of Thrones uh, because it's a show I've refused to pirate, which means I care a lot about it, but I don't care about it so much that I absolutely have to see it. It's very confusing, my, morale, my moral standards even. My moral standards have been boosted by watching Game of Thrones. The first episode is a bit slow, but the second two are great. Uh, it's on Freeview now, uh, and that explains. Otherwise, you'd have to spend a lot of money on the box set. Well, yeah, it's still quite expensive. So, and also, community is back, and I love community, and I want to survive. So, obviously, I did l- legally download it. And the first episode is still—it's still good. It's maybe not the most accomplished community episode, but it is still pretty much up there. Um, at ah, the way community works, and so forth. So, it was quite a relief, uh, especially as it starts with a deliberate. Kind of mocking of people who are afraid it would turn into a conventional sitcom where it appears to have done but in fact it's all in our bed's head so oh thank goodness <laughs> it's nice way of
1: doing it i had forgotten that that had come out and i will immediately go and watch it now yep well second episode's ah. up
0: too double bill how exciting
1: Woo! as is the new episode of archer so that's exciting uh so my media of the week um this week i played a video game in which you play as a beautiful unicorn who has to collect fluffy bunnies in order to help her open a magical cupcake shop or at least uh, you would do that if the game wasn't called Blood Bowl. <laughs> uh, so Blood Bowl was originally a tabletop game produced by Games Workshop. Uh, these are the guys behind Warhammer. For those of you in the audience who have never at any point been fourteen years old, socially awkward, and male, um,
0: the game and I'd is probably like add
1: British. probably yeah. Well, no, emperor it's in not.
0: In I was born in Nottingham. I am the emperor. Bear.
1: I think it's it's. Pretty popular in all over the world isn't it Oh, really certainly in america i think so anyway uh so the blood bowl is a strange and violent hybrid of rugby american football and kind of lord of the rings um you play as a team of fantasy creatures sort of elves orcs and dwarves etc whose stated aim is to run a small spiky ball to one end of a playing field whilst punching maiming and often outright murdering as many of the opposing team as possible um my team are a collection that I've been playing. Are a collection of goat-headed chaos-worshipping beast men, um, yeah. who have therefore provided me with the minimal excuse necessary to spend an awful lot of time coming up with goat-based puns with which to name <laughs> my players, than actually playing the game. Um, in the pursuit of this, it turns out that unlike otters, the king of punimals, goats are very difficult to punnerize. Uh, so the best ones I managed to come up with were uh, Goatfried Leibniz. Uh, <laughs> right j edgar hoofer yeah Uh, hello my name is inner goat montoya (laughs) (laughs) Uh, kim jong ungulate (laughs) Uh, the Goat, the bad and the ugly which was one of christina's and finally uh the gotenberg melodic death metal scene right
0: wow you really are you really are pushing it there Um, scraping the barrel yeah what's the Uh, name of thor's goats i can't remember i don't know i really ought to know they might be useful for pun purposes What's its Latin name? Um, Cap- you've got what Capricorn and Aries are kind of goats and rams, aren't they?
1: Mm, mm. I, I mean, for for proper Warhammer nerds out there, the team also has a couple of like human like Chaos warriors in. So I had to come up with uh, puns based on the names of the Chaos gods in Warhammer. Uh, what, which...
0: what I did, What?
1: Corn on the cob. Oh. <laughs> oh, what was it? Uh, Kill,
0: maim, barbecue.
1: <laughs> Emilio Slanestavez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nine Inch Nails That was quite a good one And oh my
0: favourite one uh, Nuggles just want to have fun <laughs> Well that's that's obviously Factually wrong because Slanesh is the goddess of pleasure Anyway <laughs> I feel uh, we should talk about some Psychology um, We'll come back to Violent Murder a bit later <laughs> Yes we will and, uh, uh, So yes
1: Over to you Tim and Ben
0: and also Helen. And yes.
1: Well, today on the show, we are very excited to welcome a new comedy double act consisting of the half skeletal Norse goddess of hell and the governor
0: of California. It's Hell and Arnie. Uh, ben, Ben, I don't think you uh, read the memo right. It's actually, we are so proud to welcome to Psychomedia from Radio 4, the Discovery Channel, the Edinburgh Festival, and most importantly of all, the internet. She is 5.535 times 10 to the minus 25 moles, which is one third of the Festival of the Spoken Nerd. She is the geek songstress. It is Helen Arney. Welcome.
2: Ah. I think that is possibly the best introduction anyone has <laughs> ever given me, ever. Uh, if we stopped this now, I could retire. That would be it. <laughs> Done. That's it. That's my work in summary. I feel like I've been given one of those awards you get at the BAFTAs—that that lifetime
1: award. <laughs> the Psychomedia <laughs> stupid intro award.
2: <laughs> it's it. I feel like you've just summarised my life's work, and that's it. Say, Can you give me a big blob of metal, and I'll go home now? Um,
0: well, okay. I've got some blobs of metal in front of me, but I'm not sure how to get them to you. Skype hasn't added that atta- attach metal feature yet. Jam, jam
1: it into the, the microphone.
2: microphone. Come on, the future. Send it <laughs> overboard. We'll be fine. Uh, so thank you. Well, that's a delightful introduction. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be joining you from uh, from sunny uh, South London. I, mo- I mostly inhabit the internet, so I think the last bit of that introduction is the uh, is the truest bit. This is absolutely delightful. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh,
0: so, yes, um, I was emphasizing the internationality of our <laughs> listeners earlier, which I kind of comes across as a bit smug, but it is true that we probably have significant numbers of fans in India and Canada and the USA who maybe haven't heard of you, given that that all of those things are, apart from the internet, basically UK-based. And because of Tim Berners-Lee, I claim the internet too. Um, yeah. Sounds. So, um, if you just want to quickly, uh, beyond our introduction, uh, just tell them who you are and I would say why you're here. You're here because I kind of asked you on Twitter to join us, and you kindly said yes.
2: It's a tweet up. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I love good much. tweet up. Um, so, oh, so what's the question? Who I am I? Oh, do you know what though? Um, in India, it's quite likely that a large numbers of people will have heard of me because I'm on the Discovery program. You have been warned, which is not a UK program; it's a international program. Ah. It's already mm-hmm. put out in India. I had an uh, email from a friend sitting on a beach in Thailand, who was wow. incredibly disturbed. Uh, by the fact my face popped up on a television in the corner of the bar where they were riotously drunk uh, so yeah I've had messages from all over the world, quite a few from India actually uh, on my Facebook page saying hello um, which has been very nice uh, so yes I uh, present to Stop About Science I'm a comedian, I uh, did a science degree at Imperial College uh, I studied physics because uh, I really wanted to go to university next to the Albert Hall and that was the best place for it because it is literally next to the Abbott Hall uh, so I studied physics now i do comedy and i write songs about science and you can see them on the internet yes there'll be many many links in the show
1: notes
0: yes exactly we obviously <laughs> make sure that there are plenty of uh, linkages um so that people can listen to those songs um so uh yes we tried to discuss a topic and uh, the topic is a bit vague today as as ever when we try and set a topic but helen you've um, got something about uh, smells and books and kind of setting a Proustian theme that I'm then going to investigate a bit further. But tell us about books, Helen.
2: <laughs> yes, absolutely. This is why I thought this would be perfect to talk to you about, because you can tell me more about the psychology of this thing. Uh, but I've been working <laughs> the British Library. Uh, I do a show called Festival of the Spoken Nerd, which is with uh, two other people. You've mentioned that I am, I am one third by weight, which I think is a little bit ungenerous. Yeah, that, that, but... <laughs> that, that, that is a bit
0: unfair. That's yeah,
2: true. <laughs> uh, I am. I'm definitely. Good job,
1: Tim. You've insulted the guest already. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, um, I uh, I'm one third. If you if you uh, do cumulative age, uh, that works very well. I'm only fifty percent if you go by X chromosomes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that works quite <laughs> well.
1: We don't ever go by anything else. <laughs>
2: <laughs> God, just the number of excrementers. Um, uh, so, yeah, I do check Professor a and we have been asked by the British Library to basically go to the British Library, which is the receptacle and curator and restorer and conservator of all things to do with information in the united kingdom uh, and we have to rummage through their archives they've literally let us use the word rummage i asked whether we could use the word rubbish and they said knock yourself out rummage away mm-hmm. uh, Literally, let's rummage through their archives to find whatever we want to do a show about. And they're helping us do all of this. Um, and they are absolutely amazing. I've been doing a lot of stuff in the audio archive because they don't just preserve newspapers and books. They preserve audio and political speeches and stuff like this. Oh, it's just amazing all the stuff they've got down there that we've been allowed to rifle through. But the thing that really, really uh, got my imagination going was they have a project called the Heritage Smells Project, which uh, sounds like some kind of liberty pattern on a on a material or something. The Heritage Smell by William Morris. So <laughs> um, it's, it's a project with UCL where they are doing this really interesting thing where they smell books uh, to find out more about their state of conservation. So they basically have machines that sniff books. <laughs> this is wonderful because the smell of books is so capturing of, of everyone's imagination you can always remember what the smell of old books smell like and what your what your library at school smelled like and uh, books that you've owned over time and the way new books smell the way old books smell. it's such a uh, kind of visceral thing to do with reading a book that you don't get any more when you read books on a Kindle or on the internet so it's an absolutely beautiful thing there's this human element of you love the smell of old books that there's actually this scientific element of it that they genuinely have a machine that sniffs books to find stuff about them, uh, and and it's it's not just about sort of sniffing books to find out where, what they like. It's um most it's about conservation. It's about trying to work out how uh, whether a book can be loaned out to be looked at uh, and to have its pages turned and to be uh, scanned or copied or all this stuff because um, the. It's to find out how uh, degraded it is and how old it is and, and whether it will survive being loaned out if it's a really, really old, precious book. Um, because most of the methods until this new one that they're doing with UCL, um, which basically does a, a kind of a, a radio spectrograph, I can't remember what the words are, uh, it sniffs a book and finds out what, what is coming off it, whether it's um uh, all, all these horrible smells like vanillas and acids and like hydrocarbons and
0: stuff. The whole set is kind of an aromatic thing. A decay yeah, it, is quite pungent.
2: It is, and it's full of all sorts of absolutely horrible things, tiny amounts of absolutely horrible things. Uh, mm-hmm. But some other interesting things are a little bit like smells that we. Uh, we enjoy uh, like vanilla and the smell of tobacco and coffees are also kind of these little smells are all hidden in there in this sort of old book smell. Um, so they uh, they sniff these books with a machine. Uh, well, they actually put them in a plastic bag, uh, leave them for two weeks and then sniff them. Almost, that's almost 50 shades of grey, isn't it?
0: Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I was think it reminds me of those adverts for like simplified cooking where you get all the spices in the bag and you just have to put in some chicken. Absolutely. That's how they make those. It's from books in <laughs> the British Library.
2: Uh, so there's this is brilliant, brilliant project they have where they yeah they smell the books um, to find out uh, how old they are. Just because it, it, this doesn't sound that interesting, You think, well, why haven't they been doing this for years? Um, and it's because most of the techniques they use to work out how old a book is involves destroying the book. Ah, it, it, brilliant idea. <laughs> and this is what like all over the world as we doing to find out really how old a book is, how much the um uh, the paper has acidified, because acid is the enemy of the book. And unfortunately, really cheap paper is full of uh, bad quality stuff that is uh, you know really acidic. It's full of all the, the, the uh, nasty kind of acids that attack the wood. It basically very slowly burns over time. Heating a book to 200 degrees Fahrenheit for three days is the equivalent of 35 years of aging it's the same thing heating up a book kind of slightly singes it in a way that they actually singes kind of over time i found this fascinating Basically, your books are burning while they're sitting in a library there's something very poetic
1: about that it's wonderful
2: <laughs> stuff coming off the um the burning and the degrading and um, so yeah they, they you either tear strips out of the book to analyze them uh and then you know you chop them up and you analyze that uh that They've been doing um, sort of this smell chromatography for ages, but they do it on bits of actual book rather than, you know, leaving the book preserved. And there's the thing, the fold test I've been reading about, where you um, you fold the corner of a book and if it breaks uh, after fewer than a couple of folds, uh, then the book should, should be preserved and uh, it's not. You shouldn't loan that out. It's basically dead, Uh, which is sort of somewhat debatable. Whether you, if you look at a book, you actually are sort of breaking off bits of the corner. Whether that you break the corner to prove it's really easy to break off a bit of the corner of the book. Yeah, yeah. Measure of. um, I mean, that's just actually a bit lunatic. Um, anyway, so yeah, so the only ways they've really had of of working out how old a book is, how degraded it is, how long it's going to last, uh, whether it urgently needs to be um, preserved or whether it needs to be scanned and kept, and the the book uh, it might have to be you know put down to <laughs> to use the. <laughs> Wow, how do you put down a book?
1: You just leave it, leave it in the children's section for a week, presumably. Oh, okay, because <laughs> I've
0: heard that some books can't be put down.
1: <laughs> wow, <laughs> brilliant! Excellent, Tim. I choice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> discuss the page turners and how that is <laughs> as it is. Uh, so yeah, this this fascinating thing is kind of a, it's hands off until uh, this this thing. It, books have really had to be destroyed to find out what's going on. To their state of preservation so this is a big leap forward uh, in especially really old books that you just don't want to destroy a bit of them to find out whether they're really easily destroyed i mean it's ludicrous
0: yeah. i'm just thinking about the sort of things that end up in places like the british library because i know it's quite similar to the bodleian library in oxford and the bodleian library has something like one of the four copies of the magna carta and you don't really want to take a bit off that
2: no and those Not are clearly ones um but it's it it takes every single book and periodical that has ever been published in the uk Uh, so that's just an incredible amount and it's just miles and miles of of bookshelf space they need every year just to to fit the, the stuff that's coming in every year and they have this amazing stuff they have these big vaults in the basement where um the atmosphere is kept uh, really cold, but not too cold. And it's at 16% oxygen, which is uh, less than the oxygen you have at the top of Everest. It's kept wow. so something like twer- 13% oxygen, nothing can catch fire. Uh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're eliminating the danger of someone uh, accidentally dropping their cigarette while they're wandering around the vault. That sure, does not. Anyway.
1: I just got this wonderful, like, mental image of, like, sort of massy librarians in glasses putting on these huge hazmat suits and gas masks and like descending into this frozen, like, ice area underneath the British Library with like big sets of tongs to go and collect books.
0: Well, I know part of the plan for the um, kind of um, the less got outbooks again at the Bodleian, which is another copyright library so it's doing effectively the same thing is to put it in a zero oxygen environment and just have robots do that bit <laughs>
1: <laughs> they'd presumably be marginally more
0: you know empathic towards students than the librarians currently are oh uh, yeah probably. Ah! i think the british library is a, like the friendlier version there's two copies <laughs> and one is good and one is evil
2: <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's a race against time depends which side you're on though depends uh, whether you think I they're suppose. good or- yeah, we have a big, uh, enormous, completely sealed, low oxygen facility, but it's not zero oxygen. A lot of people think that it's low oxygen that means it's zero. It's not because uh, uh, it is actually possible to go in there. I'm right. Hmm. Hmm. They do have robots there that go and collect your book from the shelf space and bring it back again. Um, But (laughs) yeah, to stop things accidentally setting on fire, but it it slows that degradation that is basically just books incredibly slowly burning using their own internal fuel.
0: That's
1: fascinating.
0: Wow. (laughs) But I think that's the thing about kind of machine smelling is even more remarkable because usually machines aren't very good at it and humans are quite good at it. We were talking only last week about how bees can be used to sniff out explosives yeah and uh (laughs) dogs we know can uh, sniff out uh cancer you know before we can diagnose it with chemical tests so in a way you'd want to train up you wouldn't want to train a dog to sniff a book because that's a risk waiting to happen (laughs) maybe some
1: maybe some like library bees that could work
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that would work out. Because you can hold on to the bee a bit more, I think. You put it in a little casing. And then you set it free <laughs> when it's done, which is still my favourite bit about using bees to sniff out explosives if you let them free to live a normal life once they've done their job.
2: It's like <laughs> retirement. Not enough bees. We're having a bee shortage at the moment. So uh, we... Very... ...and involve them in uh, genuinely useful research and employment. Uh, <laughs> Good. This could be...
1: Back to work schemes for bees. That's what we want. We don't want bee slavery, but you know, get them, get them working in libraries. Yeah. Um,
2: uh, but if we can, if we can facilitate their protection, uh, <laughs> uh, giving them a new life as a, librarian, uh, then this could be this could be the answer. This could be uh, the whole. Um, uh, I think we're, we're planning a whole show at the British Library, it's on the 22nd of March, uh, where we'll be talking about this and about all sorts of other things, like the use of diethyl zinc to, to attempt to de-acidify, deacidify and preserve books. Uh, and diethyl zinc, if you don't know what diethyl zinc is...
0: <laughs>
1: Those few amongst you who don't know what diethyl zinc is.
2: Weirdly, you will. It's basically like, uh, you know napalm? <laughs> <laughs>
1: i'm familiar with the concept
2: <laughs> it's on contact with and it seeks out moisture and reacts with it incredibly violently
1: uh, brilliant it,
2: it's been used as early rocket fuel big uh, so it, it, the first rocket programs it's never been confirmed but apparently they used uh, dez diethyl zinc uh, to power rockets because it so violently reacts with any moisture and it's an uncontrollable reaction uh it uses the oxygen within it so it it, it basically like a thermite reaction it just completely blazes through they use it uh as, as early rocket fuel it's been um it's been used as a kind of like napalm type thing but um uh as to kind of separate To to be thrown in the air to create these firewalls, and it's been used in bombs. It's horrible, like horrible, horrible stuff. (laughs) It's genuinely horrible. Uh, But it has this property of um, slightly deacidifying paper. It goes and in a vacuum, and you pump in a little bit of diethyl zinc vapor. It will immediately be attracted to all the remaining moisture hidden in the book, and it will like zone in like a bee. It will go. (laughs) Deliberate like a
1: like an incendiary, terrifying inferno bee.
2: Amazing bee. Uh, zoom inside the book and seek out all the moisture and and, and bond with it, and and then that uh, its presence would deacidify the paper. So it was originally in the fifties. At the same time as it was being used as rocket fuel and like you know, legal weapons, uh, it was being used by the Library of Congress to attempt uh, by NASA. They used a NASA test plant to, <laughs> to uh, deacidify books using uh, explosive diethyl zinc. And it went so badly and so wrong that uh, they had to basically blow up the plant they were using. Uh, because wow. Full of explosive diethyl zinc. They didn't know where it was in the pipes. They didn't know how to get it out. They had to just blow it up and leave. That that is a bad like test
0: of a new thing, really. If you just destroy (laughs) where you were doing it, you have messed up.
1: And so, uh, are they now attempting to reintroduce this highly successful and not at all dangerous chemical to the British Library?
2: They um, they gave up eventually. It was sort of one million. million That
1: seems. probably a reasonable response to yeah as you say exploding the entire plan you were doing it i was going to say when you were sort of leading into all the stuff about the diethyl zinc it was like it, it does sort of relate to that thing about what you were saying before about burning books in order to find out how you know how damaged they're becoming this seems like very much a step in the wrong direction putting napalm on books to see if they're to try and try them out
2: uh, it, it was absolutely, absolutely ludicrous. But you know, it was one person's brilliant idea, uh, and they just
0: right. <laughs> we we were very fond of one person's brilliant idea on this show, but brilliant yet doesn't... ludicrously dangerous idea.
2: <laughs> Incredibly bad idea. Uh, you know, one person got himself a department and a budget and a NASA vacuum factory.
0: Just... <laughs> Yeah, I feel I should be bolder in some of my pitches for new experiments. <laughs> yeah, you can always come out with the line,
1: it's not a diethyl zinc napalm explosion, so...
2: Yeah,
0: you <laughs> should you should try that the next time you need funding for something. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
2: really, I'm fine to your precious books, so it's all right. So yeah, that was a genuinely interesting little bit of, uh, of a book history that I've, I've dug up. But again, it's, it's fascinating. Burning, burning books is such a... Um, I like an emotional thing you know it's, mm. saying the words burning books is almost I feel awful saying it yeah. because it's such a culturally horrific thing uh, that is such a statement but it is genuinely happening all the time your books are slowly degrading and they are quietly you know burning away in the atmosphere um and and this incredibly ludicrous uh, idea for preserving books ended up with a lot of them just completely flammable
0: yeah <laughs> yeah of course um so yeah while we're on uh, savagery d- destroying civilization
1: can uh, can, I, can I just butt in briefly okay, before you cause, transition cause seamlessly I was going to do
0: just the most beautiful <laughs> belaved segue but go on then ben well
1: i when uh, when i was looking for stuff about smells i did actually run across an article um from the chicago tribune about uh, kind of the psychedelic effects that books can have on you. Okay. Because apparently some very, very old books, um, if you spend an awful lot of time around them, you can get what's called fungal hallucinations. Of course. Because of the like, the mould that builds up in them. It's this little article, I'll put it in the show notes, I we'll won't discuss it at much length, but apparently some one of England's leading mycologists um, and the Dean of Dermatology at Guy's Hospital in London think that if you spend enough time sort of nosing around in very, very old books, you can basically get a hallucinogenic high. Uh, So you've got that to look forward to, I suppose, Helen. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Brilliant. So don't manage to set yourself on fire um, (laughs) to hallucination that makes you think you are. I mean,
1: that's (laughs) to both worlds. (laughs)
0: Okay, I don't think I can do a good transition from that. Of
1: course you can! um, Thinking of people who set stuff on fire...
0: Ah, yes, thinking of people who set stuff on fire and savagery to feed civilization (laughs) and the um, old smells, basically. Uh, I want to actually, yeah, investigate memory and olfaction and to do that, I want to talk about Vikings. I mean, there's a lot of time when I want to talk about Vikings, but this time it is actually on topic. Um, So, yeah... The seminal paper on uh, discussing olfaction and memory is called this. The ability of odours to serve as state-dependent cues for real-world memories, so far so normal, can Viking smells aid the recall of Viking experiences? And I'll confess <laughs> that this, is, <laughs> I was unaware that we had any Vikings available for research purchases. You know, packs uh, are quite expensive. Vikings are <laughs> more
1: expensive. Much harder to convince, or indeed... Uh, it like hold down a viking while you're trying to lobotomize it um yeah the helmet gets in the way also that that the interpretation of that title uh particularly the bit about like the recall of viking experiences that's very much dependent on whether you're testing vikings or the shall we say
0: recipients of viking experiences. oh yes the anglo-saxons <laughs> of northern england yes <laughs> can we get a very
1: different reactions there
0: well it, yes it turns out that while it was in the north of england uh The Viking experiences concerned were not actually the experiences of Vikings, but experiences of Vikings in a museum. (laughs) Vicarious Uh, (laughs) Vikings, you might say. (laughs) Uh, Yes. And so basically what had happened up to that point was this Proustian idea that smell evokes autobiographical memory. And I'll discuss some of the investigation into that in a bit. But they wanted to get really systematic, as objective as they possibly could, because what good is a Madeline that you cannot do an anover on? and because the other thing that people had done was that they presented words with specific odors and saw if those triggered memory later but they so they wanted to do episodic memory our own autobiographical memory and they also want to study it properly and their solution to this was so why is
2: i remember the smiles
0: well, exactly. Well, this, this bit could be very evocative for you then. Why is the Jorvik Viking Centre so key to objectively studying episodic memory? Well, it is because, as part of the museum experience, they try and recreate the smell of York in 948 A.D., That's specifically what it says, 948, no earlier, no later. It smelt very specifically at that time. And so, yeah, they pipe a combination of seven distinctive smells into the museum to the scent. (laughs) Seven distinctive herbs and spices. Exactly. (laughs) While it is the smells of a dark ages slash early medieval town, it still tastes better than KFC. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. The other part of this, apparently, is that visitors are conveyed on a vehicle for the first part of the visit so i do not remember this should be very similar exactly i've been to the york viking center i remember none of this
1: i remember standing outside and you know queuing to get in and apropos po of nothing two guys in viking dress came out wandered around for a bit and then started fighting each other
0: that happens <laughs> quite a lot around you ben <laughs>
2: <laughs> what are you today? oh let's dress up and have a fight oh yeah brilliant <laughs>
0: Do so you remember the uh,
1: the college ball where we had some. Well, uh, yeah, this is the thing. Is, we people. had a
0: medieval college ball where some. Uh, not a medieval. Well, we were more. Uh, yeah, we were still late medieval, early Renaissance. No, it must have been the yeah. Renaissance because Erasmus liked us or something. I forget. Mm-hmm. A college ball where a similar thing happened, but with Anglo Saxons. They were definitely Anglo Saxons, right? They were. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> That's the Dark Ages, so it's historically inaccurate. They should have been kicked out. Yes, oh. but they weren't. <laughs>
2: If you uh, smelt the smell from Jorvik Viking Centre, I think it would all rush back. Well, this is all... basically what they
0: reckon. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I'm, we, we are going to try it a little bit later because I have a coin from Jorvik. That's the only bit I remember is the coin. And I have Wow. A coin from me. I'm going to sniff that coin. I'm also going sniff, to sniff some other coins from my coin collection. Because um, <laughs> I have a coin collection. It's not organised. It's just in a tin. But it is full of amazing coin so we'll smell some of those. Uh well you guys probably can't, but I'll try and it what makes said. for great radio, Tim. It really does. Oh exactly. Smell a vision, unfortunately, <laughs> just not a thing we can do as a podcast. But there we go. So yeah, they actually what they did they did this at Cardiff University. They didn't do this in York at all. And so they found participants in Cardiff who had all been to Jorvik. And I suppose it's <laughs> a lot of us in England to have. It is one of our top museum kind of attractions. But yeah, and they've been there on average six years before the experiment and they did a two stage experiment. They split them into three groups. So. One group got the Jorvik smells, which I can exclusively reveal are burnt wood, apples, rubbish acrid, beef, fish market, rope tar, and earthy. And uh, we'll be selling our own Viking scent just from the Cyclopedia <laughs> shop. Um, one group got non Jorvik smells, which were coffee, peppermint, rose, antibacterial cleaner, coconut, maple, and rum, which I don't think make as coherent a scent picture as the Jorvik, you know, York in the. Um, 10th century ones. The closest scenario I... I've managed to come up with for those smells are drinking pina colada in a sterile Canadian bar.
2: <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I, I think we, we, we've all done as well about average six years ago. I guess the problem is, you know,
1: if, you, if they were trying to come up with their control smells, what you don't necessarily want is to invoke any other specific memories maybe so you don't
0: actually want a cohesive set what they actually matched for was some food smells one unpleasant smell and Mm. that was it basically what they were aiming for it's
1: one of those things about like uh, the kind of ignorance of smell as a sense and our kind of we don't have that immediate access to it and we don't have any real as far as i know any useful standardized metrics of you know different smell component magnitudes or whatever you couldn't you couldn't get like
0: a wavelength matched set of smells
1: for uh, your controls
0: to be like not because it's all so complex you know it's yeah the receptors are much more unique and so yeah it is because it's so much more complicated compared to sight it's probably harder to mm-hmm. match anyway um it... it's
2: really interesting your your sense your sense of smell uh, that we've done this in, in festivals recognized it's it's kind of a, like a lock and key system but a huge one, if the scent molecule fits a certain thing, it will it will trigger it off. But there are some weird ones, like uh, some like strawberry and pineapple. Uh, Those smells are exactly the same molecule, but they're either twisted left-handed or right-handed, and it's something like left-hand and uh. pineapple. But it is exactly the same, exactly uh, <laughs> the same structure, but it just twists one way instead of the other, and that I find flipping extraordinary. It's exactly the same stuff making up two different smells and the
0: subjective experience is definitely different and what i find stunning about that is that all of these things kind of exist we have all of these receptors that are all vaguely different shapes and then once it fits that gives you this subjective experience and you kind of you get this association with the object i yeah i think olfaction is really amazing and Mm -hmm. just the memory part of it is one small part of why it's so Amazing. And my sense of smell is rubbish, which is a real asset uh, at work because I do a job that involves a certain number of unpleasant bodily smells. I work in health, and um, so it's usually an advantage. But I feel I am missing out on some of the amazingness that it's not that strong for me, and I don't get that as much in the variety of kind of capacity. I mean, maybe in hearing, but less so in sight when it's not kind of considered some kind of disability.
2: Do you, um, do, is your sense of taste affected, do you find? Because that's hugely linked in. your Yeah,
0: um, I don't know. I like kind of contrasting flavours um, and quite strong flavours. So I wonder if I'm, yeah. like anyone with kind of sensory deficiency, I'm seeking out stimulation to compensate for it. I suppose there's very few, uh, like with smell, there's very few objective tests. I mean, the closest I,
1: I could think of was would be... Something like wine tasting, where you could legitimately kind of compare yourself to someone else on your ability to kind of distinguish between very subtle flavours.
0: But. And yeah, yeah, but you'd have to be able to judge the similarity. Well, you know, they do steps up and down when they're doing within smell. So they do very much within smell, but it's not so much that, mm. it's just the magnitude. I don't know. Maybe my threshold would be less. They did test this. I can't remember what the study we did was for, but they did test people's thresholds of smell.
1: Oh, yeah, and it was the one about gender, and it turns out that women have. Oh, yes. Do women More smell better? And the answer
0: is yes. And also yes. Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: so,
2: picks up hormones as well. So it's not just about smellies. Oh, also... yeah. We're going to come on to that later.
1: <laughs> so much.
0: So, uh, so much. yeah. So they also had a control group who got no smells. And when smelling these respective smells, they answered a questionnaire on what they remembered of the Jorvik exhibition. Uh, specifically, the v- jewellery worn. And uh, Vikings were apparently big on bling. Um, oh, actually, no, sorry, I've got my notes a bit stuck together. Uh, Vikings were big on blithely pillaging. Um, <laughs> the food they That ate... doesn't even work! Yes, it does. Oh, yeah, no, it starts it does, with yeah. blur and ends in ing. <laughs> it was folded vertically. Also, it wasn't <laughs> folded because it's on a computer. But still, <laughs> the point stands. Um, so, uh, the food they ate, the things that were on sale, and the way the buildings were, and they only asked questions about the first bit of the exhibition, which is apparently called the time car. Uh, <laughs> Or should I say, the time car. Um, Which I imagine is never going to quite live up to the assignment of its name. Oh, I think the one with the goose. Of course, the one with the goose and the TARDIS. Um, So yeah, and so what they did is they put these seven odours from Jorvik, or from not Jorvik, in front of them, and they were asked to smell each of them before doing the questionnaire, and then to smell them throughout the questionnaire, just kind of between questions and such. This took about 15 minutes, and then they had a five-minute break, And they answered an identical questionnaire afterwards, but with the odour swapped around, except for the control group, who still had no smells. And uh, after doing this, the rationale of the experiment was explained, which I imagine may well have been pretty baffling up to this point. It's like, have you been to Jorvik? And (laughs) would you like to smell some smells? Maybe. I mean, some of them were psychology students. I bet they were waiting for something horrifying to happen, Um, because that's what you always suspect if you can't figure out an experiment. Well... Yeah, as I say, I don't have seven smells in front of me. What I do have is a coin from Jorvik, and a coin that apparently is based on one that's in the British Museum. It features a very mallet-like Mjolnir. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to smell it. And what it reminds me of is, basically, I can vaguely remember doing the kind of thing to print this coin myself. That's all I can really remember. I can't remember much about York at all. I remember going to York. I remember how cold it was because we thought February half term is the best time as children to go and visit a cottage in Yorkshire. Um, but it's not really bringing back that thing. So I've got some other coins to sniff. Uh, one is a uh, JFK uh, silver half dollar. So I'm just very gonna... careful. Um, uh, hmm, it... Ben, do you know where I was on November the 22nd, 1960? <laughs> so I'm starting to have some doubts and worries. Actually, Ben, you were, do you know where you were... I was on November the twenty-second, 2012? Because I'm starting to have some doubts <laughs> and worries. Uh, actually, I checked my calendar. It turns out I went to Kineminster that day, uh, which you... in some ways just as bad. Uh, I, so, yeah, thought I... Were, uh, I thought you
1: were. I thought you were smoking marijuana with a set of like hyena-headed humanoid monsters. You know, the grassy knolls. No, <laughs> no too far.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think we've might have finally stretched the pun machine. Um, so, yeah, I've, got one last, I've got one last coin, uh, so I'll sniff that. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, it, it's a, a thousand credit piece from Alderaan, uh, which just kind of smells smoky. <laughs> I, no, I genuinely have an Alderaanian thousand credit piece. Having said of that, it is do. sourced of from the special you. edition of the digital version of Star Wars Monopoly, rather than a legitimate currency exchange that would give me real Republic credits. Probably Imperial credits at that
1: point. Um, we were doing, I, I knew there was something strange it was the fact that Helen had done the first section, which was why we would got so far without a Star Wars reference.
0: <laughs> Look, the mantra of this show is overly obscure references and too much about Star Wars, and I think we've just fulfilled that brief within a 30 second. <laughs> so, yeah, um, back to the experiment, because I don't think that coin sniffing has worked very well, probably because of my rubbish sense of smell. What they found. And you've made it up. <laughs> a main effect of test. Uh, because repeating a questionnaire turns out it leads to improvement. Um, mm. Also, a significant interaction. So they analysed the effects individually. They found the second group who got the Viking smells second improved their test's performance. But those who got the Viking ah. smells first and the control group did not improve significantly. Now, they didn't actually find a significant difference that the first uh, test had the Viking smells group first. They did have the highest mean score.
1: Um, but not significantly post- so.
0: I'll go back to explain it, what their explanation for why this bit didn't work is. Um, they did some post-hoc tests to include the possibility that the names of the smells might have helped the answers. Because I think, like, what thing was on sale, if you know the thing is called fish market smell, then that might yeah. be a clue as to what thing was on sale. Though, so they exclude those and it still had the same effect. And whether guesswork differed between the groups, because maybe smelling Viking smells makes you more full holiday, But there was <laughs> no increase in guesswork between the groups. So,
2: so, uh, you know, so successful. They just, they felt no fear because of the smell.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Vikings, notorious risk takers. Well, yeah. You know, attacking all those un- undefended monasteries. They were risky. defended
0: by monks with heavy books. <laughs>
1: <apparently>. <laughs> Which we all know may have been incendiary devices or hallucinogenic.
0: Exactly. <laughs> Chemical warfare and biological warfare. That's Brother Melchior, oh, quick, get the napalm, bo- get the napalm books. The Vikings are coming. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, the conclusions they drew were exposure to the specific cells, specific cells, the specific smells that would have accompanied a memory, improved recall of episodic memory in a systematic fashion. And they emphasised that the within-subjects findings worked and that the reason that the between-subjects findings probably didn't come up significant was because of the great variability in episodic memory. Even if the experience was very much on rails, you experienced the same thing, Um, you're always going to experience it differently because of context, even if it was a similar time ago. Um, So, you know, obviously you're going to say that if your between-subjects findings weren't significant and you probably wouldn't bring it up if they were but it seems fair enough. And so the inappropriate odours, no giggling, uh, did not (laughs) support performance at the test. And You say no giggling, that is a cue to giggle. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost as if I'm using kind of comedic irony. Um, So I think that's kind of justified Episodic memory clearly does differ a lot. Um, cool. But yeah, fortunately, it accords with the more lab-based short-term stuff, which is always helpful that you can bring in the less ecologically valid research that comes to similar conclusions. Um, but the amazing thing is it doesn't just work in a 48-hour period, but a 6.7 years on average period. And so they put it down to Tolving's contextual encoding of memory, which no doubt we've discussed before, the most obvious one being a memory test in scuba and non-scuba conditions shows Matching the context improves performance, whether you're underwater or over the water. Um, so what they suggest is uh, that by having seven smells combined, uh, it means the effect is unlikely to be diluted by the smell appearing in a number of contexts. So that's why they got strong effect. And, and finally, on um, the Vikings, my favourite bit of any study, the subjective comments. And essentially, they suggest that rubbish acrid might have been the most effective smell because it provokes the greatest effective response. And the amygdala gets a lot of smell input. And when aroused, that increases memory encoding. And so they say most frequently mentioned is the very pungent rubbish acrid odor which pervades the Viking toilet area and appears to evoke a disgust response in almost all visitors. And I think <laughs> anything that pervades a Viking toilet area should probably evoke disgust. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I did want to include uh, quickly a review of um, investigations into Proust and people's experiences of winning Grand Prix. Um, I really like jokes like the latter. How many people care about old Formula One and French literature? Probably no one. Um, no one here. Exactly. <laughs> so there's a review by Chew and Downs which basically points out that once again smell is the hipster sense. We've kind of discussed how amazing it is but how inaccessible it is. Uh, I've previously described smell as the yellow ranger from Power Rangers uh, <laughs> because it's not necessarily respected as much as it deserves and it gets on Quite well with the Pink Ranger taste. Anyway, we won't go back to that. Um, (laughs) They describe the psychology of olfaction as aromacology, uh, which is ridiculous. Uh, That makes it sound like it's like digging up some old smells to. Wait a minute, that's. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Aromacology might be what we've already discussed. Anyway. uh, So the article claims that many real individuals also experienced what Proust did in In Pursuit of Lost Time, very similar uh, to an incident in my youth when my parents mislaid me. Uh, That's In Pursuit of Lost Time. Yes, there we go. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) the largest ever study of Proustian phenomena was done by the National Geographic magazine uh, and not because everyone remembers the first time they read the National Geographic magazine. Um, They gave readers six scratch and sniff cards um, and asked them to respond if it triggered a memory and they eventually got 26,000 responses and it worked for about 55% of 20-year-olds and then kind of decreased through age to about 30% of 80-year-olds and... In the lab tests, have basically shown that the more distinctive odours lead to better memory in the context testing, just as we've seen in the Jorvik study. But they point out that Proustian memories, if you, know, you can categorise them, are old, vivid and emotional. And they're triggered by um, an awareness of the odour rather than ambient odor uh, mm. Other research may succeed at the latter, but it still isn't really episodic memory. So there was this one guy called, well, not one guy, a whole team of people, Rubin et al. in 1984, didn't find any special quality of odour-triggered memory. And these guys take their statistics to task, because if someone disagrees with you, it's probably because their statistics were wrong, rather than the situation being complex. Anyway, so they themselves, uh, Chew and Downs, had done an experiment involving people in their late 60s and early 70s who were given olfactory or verbal cues, and they found that the olfactory clues led to older memories. Uh, or at least okay. the peaks of these memories were between ages six and ten years old, whereas verbal cues tend to lead to memories between eleven and twenty five years old. And could
1: this be something to do with you know what you were saying before about the fact that most the the complexity of 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 factory stimuli means that they're less likely to get kind of overlapping memories with other things,
0: maybe? I don't um, know. plausibly. I mean, they're going to suggest some things as they uh, go on. And yeah, other work had found that odor provoked memories tend to be emotional, vivid, and old. But they didn't really contrast them with other cues. They found that they were, but not that others weren't. Um, and so finally, they argue that the study on the Jorvik Viking Centre is the best ecologically valid experimental understanding of Proust thus far uh, in about the year 2000, because I couldn't find a the review. So then they put some hypotheses forward as to how it actually works. And so the first just explains what we've already uh, been saying olfactory cues trigger stronger autobiographical memories and they call this the differential cue affordance value because every hypothesis needs a catchy name and the alternative that they suggest to this is the differential coding bias which is not very well differentiated from the previous hypothesis basically olfactory cues aren't better at triggering memories but they are coded more strongly with the complex autobiographical memories that they tend to evoke okay but yeah, it, if this done. was the case, that if you showed the name of an odour, or a picture of where an odour comes from, that would have the same effect. Because the job of the odour has been done in an encoding, and if you summon up the odour, you should summon up that complex memory. And that doesn't work. Essentially, as we know, right. he didn't get that effect by seeing Madeline written on the menu of the cafe. He had to taste and smell the Madeline. Um, so... Uh, They believe the mechanism by which this happens, neurophysically, is the olfactory bulb. Which is part of the brain I admit I don't know that much about, except how come does it get to be a bulb when the primary visual cortex and the primary auditory cortex don't get special shapes? And the (laughs) olfactory bulb projects into the amygdala, it projects into the hippocampus, it projects into the thalamus, all of these very important areas in memory, very important areas in emotion. So emotional memories are always going to be getting a lot of smell input just by the structure of the system. It has a very different memory profile to visual memory. So short-term memory of smell is not as good as short-term memory of vision. But the details that you take in last much longer. Um, so some people even suggest it's a completely different system. But even if it's not, the stimuli are encoded more strongly because of closer structural connections. And thus, when they evoke, those structural connections underlie why they come back more frequently and more strongly. And it's, final point, um, the in, uh, evoke emotional reactions anyway and so your amygdala is going to be modulating up those memories because when there's a smell your amygdala's on right oh this is important smells are kind of a sign that things are emotionally important unless you're a psychopath it turns out ah yes we have discussed this or I don't think we discussed it I talked about it on a previous episode that uh, psychopath smells are weakened because again because smell is so integral to emotional circuits someone like a psychopath with weakened emotional circuits has weakened smell
1: Turns out also depressives as well. Uh, okay. I ran across uh, you, what you were saying earlier about olfaction being really interesting. There are more, I think I came across more really intriguing studies prepping for this than I have done for any topic in a long time. There are like a number of studies about uh, kind of decreased olfactory sensitivity in people with depression
0: and psychopaths. It was really cool. Okay, well, if you want to talk about some of your olfaction stuff, Ben, because I'm, I'm done on Proust for now. <laughs> <laughs> Swan's way is done.
2: Yes. Do well ask?
0: done.
2: I'm a bit concerned about the fact that they, they took all these psychology students and made them smell the smells that Vikings were smelling at the time they were raping them.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, there well, are ethical questions. It's still not the worst thing a psychologist has done by, you know, a magnitude. <laughs>
1: And allow me to speak to that now with some more studies. Unless Helen, you need to scuttle off. Um,
2: uh, fascinating. I, um, I'm busy taking notes so I can regurgitate it at the British. <laughs> okay. Well,
1: excellent. well. In that case, uh, since you were mildly disturbed by the idea of smelling uh, fabricated Viking smells, yeah. Let me let me <laughs> let's plumb the depths of psychologists depravity. Uh, with first off, we're going to do some stuff about the smell of fear which should be kind of good. So it's a commonly stated fact that animals can smell fear. Apparently, it turns out I found there's even a band called Bears Can Smell Fear, which apparently takes its place on my list of bear bands from a few episodes ago, uh, including my favourite, uh, Helen, since you weren't there, was the band Beer Bear, who sings songs almost universally about beer and bears. Um, does what it says on uh, the tin. <laughs> does what no, <laughs> 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 yeah, is it folk metal. yeah type
2: of bear i thought isn't a, isn't a is a badger a type of bear
1: no a badger is a member of the family mustelidae the funniest animals in the world including stoats weasels and otters
0: yeah, say <laughs> so if you want someone who knows about badgers and or bears man <laughs> is the man
1: <laughs> we uh We have a beanbag in the shape of a bear sitting in our corner in our room. Bears are quite popular in this household. Um, Anyway, (laughs) uh, fear. Animals smelling fear. Is this actually a thing or is it just that bears can smell humans and humans being smelled by bears tend to be quite fearful? Um, It turns out that there is a bunch of research showing that human fear can be smelled not only by bears, but also by other humans, though they may not necessarily be consciously aware of it. Um, by far the well, I've written by far the most awesome thing about these studies, but it's also by far the most disturbing thing about these studies is the way that they obtained their axillary chemo signal stimuli, or to put it ambiguously, or their armpit sweat samples, to put it unambiguously and slightly grossly, because all of these studies involve squirting participants with sweat collected from people's armpits.
0: Mm. <laughs>
1: yes, brilliant. For you see, there is absolutely nothing romantic about human olfaction. Whatever Chanel or Dior or Jean-Paul Gaultier want you to believe, whatever perfumiers want you to be, believe, it's basically all about getting sweaty. Um, so, if you want to find out whether your participants can smell fear, you have to creep up beside, behind someone, shout boo, and then quickly swap their underarm before they have a chance to swap you. Or the nearest scientific, uh, ethically approved equivalent of that. Hmm. For example, uh, Albrecht et al. in 2011, they collected their sweat samples from men who were completing a high rope assault course and then uh, squirted those onto female participants uh, for five minutes and found that the female participants' own levels of conscious state anxiety actually were found rose significantly um, as compared and they to specifically. Compared- Compared to the standard control group, you, they didn't just compare, you know, it, the fear wasn't due to the fact that the participant had been squirted with man sweat for five minutes. It yep. was that specific man sweat. Um, Good. They were meticulous. They uh, Another study found that using a very similar procedure, uh, people squirted with high rope course sweat were engaged in more risky behavior in a decision making task. Um, it's kind of interesting. And finally, uh, pren Christensen et al. in 2009 collected their sweat from university students who were about to sit their final oral exams, so their vivas. Um, and upon sniffing this particular heady brew of anxiety, sleep deprivation and mild psychosis, participants showed neural activity in brain regions associated with empathy. So uh, the insula, the precuneus and the cingulate cortex for all the neuroscientists in the audience Uh, I assume there must be at least one Uh, anyway so in conclusion not only can bears and humans smell fear but when they do it it apparently makes them frightened risk averse and sympathetic uh, which absolutely in no way sorry risk taking and sympathetic which in no way explains bear behaviour and therefore I am forced to dismiss all this highly detailed neuroscientific evidence as a bunch of sweat stained baloney
0: Hmm. Well, it does. I, is it wrong that I, I, I guess because I'm reading The Men Who Stare at Goats at the minute, my first thought is we could weaponise this. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I think, think that is the problem, isn't it? Yeah, the the quantities of of fear sweat that you're going to need to collect starts to evoke images not akin to like a like a mass milking farm.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I suppose so. It, but in the That's... sky. Um, so there we go. That's that's some creepy stuff. Um... May I may I one up my own creepy level by talking about some sex and olfaction?
0: Yes. Go go ahead, Ben.
1: You know, it's awesome. it the
0: day after Valentine's Day after
1: all. Exactly, exactly. Since it was just Valentine's Day, I thought we ought to do something related to that on the podcast, but unfortunately I couldn't find any studies on the cycle psycho- of psychological effects of being beheaded by Romans. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, instead I found some studies about the smell of love. Mm. Sorry, a bit slow on the mark there. Um, uh, yeah, so, the very first of these uh, follow very much follows in the Harvest Sweat Squirt at Participants Profit methodology established earlier. <laughs> uh, but uh, rather than tossing participants out of airplanes, I'm sure you can see where I'm going with this, oh. uh, Denise Chen and colleagues uh, leveraged a different kind of tossing by collecting sweat produced while male volunteers were watching pornography. Oh, uh, They then squirted this porn sweat at unsuspecting female volunteers in an MRI scammer and found that this sweat caused activation in the orbitofrontal cortex and fusiform gyrus. Uh, Which tells us precisely not a lot, because the orbitofrontal cortex is one of the least understood areas of the whole brain. But it's It's definitely involved in smell. (laughs) It's associated with perceiving stuff and things um so there's really not much to go on i think um, we talked taught about taught
0: by one of the world's leading experts in the front of the cortex ben
1: we should probably ask him about it um
0: <laughs> yeah where, where is he on the run at the minute <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah um but it, so the, these areas weren't activated by the non-porn sweat so there must be something going on but yeah who who knows what um Finally, my final study that I want to talk about, we thankfully move away from porn and perspiration, and, which would make an amazing Jane Austen novel. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we're going to seek out some answers to a deeply pertinent Valentine's Day question. Whereabouts in the supermarket should you ask someone out?
0: Uh, hey, this could be useful <laughs> for my life,
1: Ben. <laughs> Potentially, yes. So, uh, should it be by the sultry dairy counter so you can gaze into her eyes and say, E damn,
0: girl, you make me feel so gooder, will you brie mine? <laughs> Why did I not have a feeling this was coming? My Maybe sense of impending I... doom is broken.
1: Maybe it should be in the meat aisle next to rows of romantically glistening beef and chicken so you can
0: say, My
1: lamb, I shall not mince my words, you stake my breath away, and
0: my heart, you fill it with joy. Yeah, you should only do that if you're a real stallion.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, topical! <laughs> or maybe it should be in the frozen goods section, so you can quickly put a bag of frozen peas on your face so when you get slapped for all those god awful puns.
0: Well, I, I, I think I know from uh, some of Helen's work which one she might prefer. <laughs> uh, check,
2: check out, um, uh, because everyone wants an unexpected item in their baggage area. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But, um, sh- oh yeah sorry I- i'm a bit <laughs> carry on ben
1: <laughs> so I uh, 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 those puns. got that out of the way um it turns out you should do none of the above uh but if you need science science to tell you that and you probably have bigger problems to worry about so researcher nicolas guéguin or Guguin, Guguin, Guguin. he's french it's, it's probably nicolas Mugler. Um, was presumably flummoxed by his lack of success in asking out random strangers in supermarkets. So he decided to test whether the ambient fragrance of different supermarket aisles has a
0: significant impact on romantic success rate. I am um, suspicious of all romance and attraction researchers, because they're all really weird. And you will not be
1: disappointed by this study. Uh, he describes in the paper his, this endeavour as follows in the abstract. I quote, in a field experiment, eighteen to twenty-five-year-old women walking alone in a shopping mall were approached by an attractive twenty-year-old male confederate who solicited them for their phone number. The women were solicited as they wa- were walking in areas with pleasant ambient odors, e.g., pastries, and with no odor. It was found that women agreed more often to the confederate's courtship suge- suggestion in the pleasant-smelling areas. You Which is that pretty- I ask out a woman in Greg's. <laughs> Basically, yes. This is already pretty awesomely creepy, but don't worry. It gets better. The attractive male confederate was selected from a lineup of 18 male volunteers based on the attractiveness ratings provided by 31 young women. And this confederate was working from a script, which in the interests of promoting a sultry Valentine's Day atmosphere, I shall read an exaggerated French accent. So, upon approaching the unsuspecting lone female, the confederate would smile and say, Hello, my name is Antoine. I just wanted to say that I think you are really pretty. I have to go to work this afternoon, and I was wondering if you would give me your phone number. I'll phone you later, and we can have a drink together someplace. (laughs) The paper goes on, after making this requ- request, the confederate was instructed to wait 10 seconds and to gaze and smile at the participant. If the participant accepted the confederate's solicitation, the confederate noted her phone number and said, See you soon, and left the participant. If the participant refused, the confederate was instructed to say, no, Too bad, it's not my day, have a nice afternoon, and leave the participant. Yeah. Wow. Science. All of that science so number I, one
2: sorry go on anyway because i just think that would have been so much more effective if whoever is listening to he- to this had just uh, gone and stuck their head in the fridge while they were listening just to get <laughs> of being in a supermarket and and absorbing all those smells because that i'm actually glad i didn't suggest that because i mean it's so powerful that uh, <laughs> You and the, the, You could have had some people turning up on your doorstep. Uh. <laughs> well, yeah, we do
0: have listeners who have listened to us in the supermarket. I know that much. Oh dear. And we do have what? listeners who Ben's uh, proclamations have caused problems, but not of that sort, in that you made someone laugh so hard they fell over. Possibly more than one person. <laughs> Choose! <laughs> uh, that was a long time ago. Anyway, um, that's right. amazing. So, so, so pastries. Some, hey,
2: some ex- I should rub myself some...
0: with pastries. <laughs> Some explanation
1: for the weirdness of this study may be found by the fact that it was carried out in the Université du Breton Sud in France. Uh, This may explain why, you know, it had any success whatsoever. Um, It may also explain why the Confederate got more numbers in the pastry section, since if you've ever been to a genuine French boulangerie, you will understand that French pastries are basically aphrodisiacs in their own right. Um, However, an alternative explanation was suggested by Ma Petit Amie when I was telling her about the study last night. She commented that it must be so crushing for the women who did give out their numbers to then receive a debriefing call a few days later saying, sorry, I only asked you out because a psychologist paid me to.
0: Yeah, you're right. That is a distress it... to self-esteem. That is.
1: It then occurred to me that being as how the Confederate had been selected for his high attractiveness and given that he was not self-selecting the women he asked out, it seems pretty likely that he would have up, he would have spoken to some women who were significantly less attractive than him. What if these were the women who tended to give out their numbers since at the time they must have felt like they were punching
0: above their weight? That's the horrible, horrible phrase th- in dating, by the way. I know it is, I know it is, but bear with me. The Hailing horrible to thought... you achieve that Struber's matching principle. Well, that,
1: that... you know, it, it is a reasonably well-established thing that you tend to, you know, end up
0: with people roughly similar attractiveness levels. Except level for the researcher actually discovered it, who has a really attractive wife and isn't that attractive himself. Right.
2: Your opinion.
0: <laughs> um, so... Yeah, there is a certain element of subjectivity as well, but...
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, only a little.
1: But... Sure. The horrible thought occurred to us. What if all the, in a sense, objectively less attractive women were hanging out in the pastry section? Or if you want to avoid the physical descriptors, what if all the women with temporarily lower self-esteem due to external factors were self-medicating via the medium of baked goods? When a handsome man pops up and out of the blue and asks for their numbers.
2: Ah, oh, but no, no, the frozen food section is equally likely to... <laughs>
0: that is a good point it does depend on where the no- they need to take these things into account that's the problem with field experiments you've got to control so many variables
1: exactly and this this study is method- methodologically ethically and romantically flawed um, but it is also brilliant so I,
0: I the defence rests there right well we have done an awful lot of psychology um, so I think what is really only left to do is uh, for Helen to say where you can find her things, and then we'll say where you can find our things, and then we will all say goodbye.
2: And oh, um, I mean, we shall leave people to repair their scars in their. <laughs> yeah, this one did go a bit,
0: you know, further than. Usual. <laughs>
2: yes, sorry, guys. <laughs> it's the whole thing, basically, wipe your own sweat on a book and set fire to it. I think. I think...
0: <laughs> and then you'll have an evocative memory of, uh, you know, Vikings. When you were asked out that time by the random French guy in the supermarket. Maybe he was a Norman. You said Sud-Breton, right? Yeah. It's not that far from Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Suddenly, there's, there's a connection that we never perceived before. This show is just one, uh, one straight line travel through yeah. one single topic we just haven't realised. Exactly. It's like Everything some sort
1: great. of Dan Brown novel.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: great. <laughs> I, I can't wait for, for for Audrey Tattoo to play my role.
2: Uh, yeah. I, I Shotgun
0: uh, Albino Paul Bettany.
2: <laughs> Who can? I, um, Ian McKellen, uh,
0: Tom Hanks, Jean <laughs> Reno, <Renault, Boone laughs> There aren't that many female characters in. And you already bagsied the main one. <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Uh, uh, what's his name? That one. Oh, him. Oh, that one, yeah, exactly. Hang on, hang on. Hang
1: on. <laughs> to the internet.
2: Sniffing some popcorn to see if it can come back to me.
1: <laughs> sniff a really, really trashy paperback. <laughs> got
2: some. I've got some, uh, yeah, hang on. Yeah. Uh, Tom Cruise, that's it. I remembered it now. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yep. Was it the popcorn or the internet that helped? Hands off. What does the internet smell of? I don't want to know. Um, so I know, uh, space, I found out what space smells of. Apparently, hang on, where is it? I know that the the... space is beige. The universe is beige. Where's the link? What does sm- space smell like?
2: Doesn't um, the internet smell of that sweat that they took from the guys watching porn? This
1: is what I suspect. Probably, yeah, exactly. Um, I think spa- space smells primarily of, like, burnt metal. Oh, right. Is that uh... I uh, don't know. Or is it uh, stars? It's either us or the stars. We're the main <laughs> Apparently players. there was like a hint of meat in there as well. I found out so many like random smell facts. Like, did you know that moles smell in stereo? Oh. Uh, that's brilliant. So you know how we hear in stereo and our, of it. the fact that we have two ears allows us to spatially locate the source of sounds based on like a single instance of the sound yeah. because it the wavelengths uh, uh, reach our ears at different times and our brain can kind of extrapolate from that a a location on the horizontal plane. So owls have vertically um, displaced ears, which means that they can locate things by sound in three dimensions, which we can't do. Moles have uh, displaced uh, smell receptors so that they can locate prey underground by smell from a single instance, whereas we'd have to kind of like walk around trying to find out where the smell gets stronger. I thought that was really cool.
2: That's incredibly cool.
1: So they're mm-hmm. essentially the Scooby Doo
0: of the real world.
1: Yeah, but for like worms instead of sandwiches.
0: Yeah, that show would be a bit different. Anyway, <laughs> so yes, um, Helen, <laughs> where can people find your things, your live shows, etc.? Where should they? Yeah.
2: Uh, well. Uh place to go is my website which is helenarney.com uh it's not spelt like the governor of california it h.com. thanks for bringing that up because uh the terminator came out uh while i was still at primary school and every time someone would say i'll be back and it was a pretty scarring time of my childhood so thanks
0: sorry i feel all the more
1: i'm glad you picked that as the one that you were upset about rather than drawing associations between a half skeletal like zombie goddess of death
0: <laughs> yeah well done uh, ben good job good um, <laughs> and yeah um and then of course there's the shows of festival of the spoken nerd which is which is website? festival of
2: the spoken Nerd. on oh, my website you can actually there okay, uh, you can go straight to uh finding my uh, songs on bandcamp that you can download uh, for free uh Videos, you can see loads of cool videos that I've made of nice animated videos for my songs. And if you click on Live Dates, if you are in the UK, uh, then you can see about the British Library show that we're doing and all the Festival of Spoken Nerd shows and all the other things I'm doing. I'm hosting, I'm a neuroscientist, get me out of here.
1: i amazing.
2: <laughs> you get to spend a whole day like this, but in real life. And uh, it's just getting people to talk about neuroscience.
0: That sounds yeah, so. very exciting. I'm sure our listeners, if they are proximate, will very much appreciate that. Um, I do recommend uh, the final countdown song because I literally cannot see or think about countdown without that song coming into my head. Um, <laughs> as we for can't... us, um, if you want to see all these links in visual form because your auditory memory is bad and we can't send them out in smell form, uh do visit psychomedia.wordpress.com, where there are the pictures, the videos, the notes, the references, because you've got to reference it in proper APA format. Else, it wasn't a proper thing. <laughs> um, we have a Twitter, Ben. That's your thing. Uh,
1: yes, you can tweet us at at team psychomedia. Uh, uh, and we have a. Th- I was going to say, if you send us a, a, a stamp and return addressed envelope. Uh, containing a uh, postal order for £10, we will send you some olfactory stimuli.
0: <laughs> right. Well, Ben's in charge of that. That's Bell, care of the Department of Experimental Psychology, Oxford. Hush.
1: Hush your noise. Don't get in trouble.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we have a Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash uh and an email can... address, which Ben occasionally Please,
1: checks. Yeah, you can email us... Uh, Psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. We're getting an awful lot of spam in there at the moment. Apparently I have many inheritances.
0: Wow, that's uh, amazing. So that's, Who knew that's your family exciting. was so big and also so dead? And so grammatically inept. Yeah, seems unlikely. So uh yeah, until next time, uh goodbye listeners. Don't be too horrified and disgusted. Uh don't burn any books, even if you're trying to make them better. Uh... <laughs> and a
1: huge thank you to Helenani for joining us. It has been wonderful. Please come join us again.
2: i I flipping well. It's been a lot of fun. Excellent. Excellent.
1: Bye. Well. Bye. bye from us. And now, a song. Zero Factor Guaranteed yeah. Funnier than Wicked Feature Here we go now Psycho-media Like TMS Burst Dangerous We arouse all
0: Your brain areas. Yeah!